0: Hi, welcome to Element. How are you doing? (laughs) I was told last service I was speaking really fast, and I know I talk fast. I'm trying to get it under control. I got it, all right? Slow down the plane. Okay, now, so I'm going to try and say this slower than I did last service. Uh, Right outside here, there's a tent, and it's all about these things called go-bags, uh, every once in a while, what happens is social services comes and has to remove a child from a home. And when they do that, uh, a lot of times that they'll just take some of the kid's stuff, throw it in a trash bag, and and take the kid out, and then put them somewhere. And all the kid has is this trash bag. And so, uh, whether you it doesn't matter. I don't think how you feel about social services. What we're trying to do is something for those kids. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're doing these things where if they have to go pull a kid out. They're gonna have these things called go bags. And so, if they're a baby, they're gonna have like a blanket and some stuff in there. You know, if they're a toddler, they're gonna have something else. If they're a teenage girl, they're gonna have like some feminine hygiene products and stuff like. That. Just so you know, you go and, and you're not spending that first night like what in the world's going on. It, it you actually have a little bit of normalcy with you. So we're trying to do something to help those kids out. So if you would are so inclined, if you would grab one of the postcards on one of the table out here and kind of go through and pick some stuff up. When you're shopping or doing whatever this week and and bring some stuff and drop it off for some of these kids. We're going to put it together in these go bags, drop them off at social services so kids can have those. I had a guy out there last service, and he was saying, well, how much should I buy? What should I get? I said, take a card, buy everything on it ten times over. (laughs) If everybody did that, we'd be okay. Uh, We actually need to make, uh, I think, 40 to 60 go bags right now for them. Uh, and that's that it's not like in a week like that'll last them for the next six or eight months all right so it's not like that's but we're looking to do something like that for them and i think it's really important for the kids because i think the kids need it so uh, welcome to element my name is aaron i am one of the pastors here there are bibles in the back if you don't own one you can have one if you forgot one you can use one there are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room if you grab one of those in the inside there's some notes that go along with what we talk about there's also some questions that go along with what we talked about on the back there's some announcements If, if you have a smartphone you can download an app it is called uversion click on live in and uversion by gps in your smartphone it will bring us up and you'll get the sermon notes and the questions and all that goes along with today's message on your smartphone you don't got to get out of the seat and grab a piece of paper it's all on your phone don't play candy crush <laughs> but do it with your phone so as i said uh, welcome my name is aaron i'm one of the pastors here why don't you stand with me for reading of god's word This is Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would help us to be a people who remember that you are the one who is and the one who is to come. And that we would trust you in that and that as you give discernment, your spirit guides us in our lives, we would listen to the things that you say so we would be a people who understand the great salvation that you have given to us and also live our lives in ways as children who honor their father. Amen. Have a seat. Alright, so what we are doing is we are looking through these things called the churches in the book of Revelation. It's chapter 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. There's letters written to seven churches there. Jesus has this guy named John write some stuff to them. So really, it's Jesus' words and in John's pen. And we're doing this to get a better picture of who Jesus is and who we are in the midst of it. So what we're doing is we're doing this, we're calling this a Lent like journey. If you're part of a religious tradition that normally Follows Lent. Lent won't start for another couple weeks, uh, but we're starting 10 weeks before Easter with it because we want God to do the hard work of coming and probing our hearts, looking deep inside of who we are and all the things that we have not surrendered to him, we want to surrender to Him. And so we start this 10 weeks before Easter. So the seven churches are going to take seven weeks. The three weeks before Easter, we're going to cover what's called the Paschal Triduum, which is the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of Jesus' death, His day in the tomb, and then His ultimate resurrection. Uh, And when people hear about the book of Revelation, they always want to know about the weird, Hollywood-esque, flying dragon with demons and lakes of fire and all that kind of stuff. Revelation is simply about worship. That's what the book is about. It's not the revelation of the number of the beast or the revelation of the two witnesses the revelation of the rapture the revelation of you know your crazy aunt who read a book somewhere and like this is what it's all about it is the revelation of jesus christ that's the name of the book okay the revelation of jesus it's all about worship worship is this word it means worthship. it's ascribing worth and value to something in our culture we ascribe worth and value and worship all kinds of stuff whether it's a sports team And I know that some of you, because after the Super Bowl, when the Seahawks lost, you made sure to call me or Facebook me or text me and be like, ah, you're all worshiping a false god. It's a band or something like that. In in Scripture, it's trying to show us how to worship the one true God. We all worship. We're all just simply designed that way. And so it's important to distinguish what we worship because you will become like what you worship. If you worship sex, you're going to become a pervert. You may hide in the closet, but you're going to become that. You worship money. You're going to be greedy. If you worship work, you're going to, like, sell Amway and have no friends. just happens. Sorry, but I sell Amway. I'm just saying. Okay. In Romans 1.25, Paul, what he tries to do is help us distinguish what this looks like. So he simplifies worship in two categories. This is what he says. They exchange the truth about God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So some people worship God, who is creator of all things, and that's true worship, and some people worship something else, which is false worship. The scriptures call that idolatry, and this could be anything, from boats, to your appearance, to cars, to car stereos, you pull up to a light, and it's all boom, and your car's all, because or God's yelling at you. you know, it's like, is worshiping the the false God? The question comes down to, what is your God? What is your God? This is Revelation and Lent. We've got to figure this out in our lives. And so, what do you spend in your life the most time and money on? You may say, well, I don't have any time and I don't have any money. Exactly, right? You, you spend it somewhere. So, so, where does that go? And you're like, well, I don't have any money but i got this brand new phone. Uh, well, that seems to be important to you. Well, I love my cable. Well, okay. it's, you, our money goes somewhere. And when we look at the trail of our time and money, it usually shows us what our God is. Now, in our culture, it's really hard to distinguish this because our culture has a ton of different gods. We're a lot like the Old Testament who just had these, all these these cultures had these gods all over the place. And these gods were there to give you youth and beauty and sex and riches and power and luck and education and wisdom and food and drink and money and fame. All of these, it sounds like today's commercials, right? You want to have a better sex life and have people like you? Buy Dawn dish soap. I don't know how they go together, but, but, oh, okay. And you got like cases of Dawn dish soap sitting in your garage. You're like, ah, I'm not having a better sex life. People don't like me. I don't understand. I got all the Dawn dish soap. What's going on? I don't get it. Right? But that's the thing. There's all these attempts to get us to work because these things will give us what we need and what we want. So what we're doing is we're looking at these churches in the book of Revelation going on the way to Easter to confront our own brokenness, our own smallness. So when resurrection comes and we celebrate that on Easter, it can be a joyous, loud celebration. You guys are going backwards. <laughs> Last week, a few, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. So today what's going to happen is we get to this church called Pergamum. I'm sure you've all wanted to go to Pergamum. You're like, oh, that's the place I just want to be, right? Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And I'm just going to hit the first line of this, and then we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff, then we'll come back to it. Revelation 2.12, Jesus says to John and to the angel of the church of Pergamum, write. When you see a location in the scriptures, it's really important to ask, well, what's going on here? Is there anything about this location that's going to give us clues as to what Jesus is going to start talking about when he writes this letter? And so you look at the historicity of it and what's going on, the historical details. Because life at Pergamum and what happened there makes a lot of sense when you start reading Jesus' words. So this is what Pergamum is like. Uh, Pergamum was a very, 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 very religious city. Very religious city. Uh, Here's a picture what the Acropolis on top of the city would look like at the time with all these different temples. Here's a picture of a satellite photo today with you know some of the ruins and stuff in the city proper of, of where it's at now. Uh, the city had all kinds of different gods. So if you walked into the Acropolis on top of this hill, you walk up and you would see this place, this temple to a, a woman called Athena. Okay, Athena. Athena is the goddess of wisdom and war. You might have heard about her from Greek mythology or if you like uh, Battlestar Galactica, you know... Maybe not, whatever. Okay. You know, these are the ruins of her temple today. And people would go to her temple to worship wisdom and war, to venerate her. If you went a little bit farther, a little outside the city, there's this place uh, called the Asclepion with the god Asclepius. And so, I know, crazy name, right? And so, so, he had this temple. They wanted this temple to be kind of a hospital of sorts. Uh, these are the ruins today. Okay, so this is what it kind of looks like. Now, Asclepius is the god of healing. And so what you would do if you were sick, you'd go to this massive area called the Asclepion. You'd tell them what you suffer from. They would take you into a little room, kind of like a day spa, and they would have you go to sleep. But unlike a day spa, they'd give you a ton of drugs to make it happen. So you'd go into this drug-induced stupor, and you're supposed to have these visions about Asclepius showing up and Asclepius healing you. And then you'd wake up, you'd tell them what you saw. They would say, "We'll do this and this and this and this and this. And when you do all that, if he heals you, then the next step you would do is you would make, you would commission a sculpture of the body part that was fixed or you would make it yourself if you couldn't have money to commission somebody to make it for you and you would show up and you go here this is my offering to Asclepius if you had a lot of money you make it out of gold silver bronze clay whatever like I always wonder if you had hemorrhoids be like he healed my hemorrhoid the golden hemorrhoid I don't it's, I just think it's kind of funny now uh actually uh, they're going through the city of, of Corinth and they found one of these temples to Asclepius. And under the temple, they have found 30,000 of these body parts. Here's a picture. They have found 30,000 of these body parts. And it kind of makes a little bit of sense when Paul says in 1 Corinthians twelve twelve, he says, For just as the body is one and it has many members and all the members of one body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. It's this whole metaphor that says, oh, you guys understand because this temple's in the middle of your city, and so this makes a little bit of sense to you that we are one body in Christ. That's who we are. Now, Asclepius means snake, and so the snake emblem is what's seen is usually part of that. This is modern medical, right? It actually kicks back all the way to Asclepius. We still associate these things together. Uh, You may have heard of this famous doctor. His name was Galen, and he was actually uh, centered his worship and practice in this city, uh, the next god, you keep walking down uh, the city path. You probably get to Demeter. Here's the god's people says, no, it's, it's, it's Demeter. Uh, actually, you can say it either way. It doesn't matter. I didn't live there. No one's offended. I don't care. Okay. Uh, she is the goddess of grain, cereal, and food. I like to say that she is the goddess of groceries. It's like, yay, Albertsons, and I worship. There. So you would go there, and you would thank her for the earth producing. Uh, here's some ruins of her temple today. Yeah, you know, still standing like that looks, looks pretty nice. Uh, the Latin name for that is, is, is Cirrus, uh, which there's a picture, which is where we get our word for cereal from. Learn something new every day, right? So there you go. You, you eat your Cinnamon Toast Crunch in the morning. Oh, Cirrus. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, so you'd go and you would worship and thank them for a meal. Uh, next, you come to Dionysus. Okay, so they worship Dionysus. Uh, Dionysus is Greek, and, and uh, the Romans would call this god Bacchus. Bacchus, Bacchus is the god of wine funniest thing first service the fifteen is like you know well i call it our our older crowd they're not that old but they're they're and and they all go woo! i'm like like really the roman god back is yeah my goodness we got a lot of work to do with them so what happened when you worship you is it's like giant party, right? So this giant party, everybody would be drinking, do all this stuff, because they believe that alcohol was filled with the spirit of Dionysus. He's what made you loopy and have to pee a lot. Dionysus, there, psst, there it is, you know. It's probably why Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. The word debauchery actually comes from the Roman name of this god, Bacchus. It becomes debauchery. And that's a nod to this God. Now, debauchery isn't you having a couple of beers with your friends or sitting down for dinner having a glass of wine. Debauchery and worship is when you would go to this God's temple and there are all kinds of different plays that were done at this temple. There's actually a theater in Pergamum where the, it's all, here's a picture right here. It seats 10,000 people. And you would go, and at the base of this, there's a stage to Dionysus, uh, to uh, Bacchus, and the temple at the bottom of this. And you would go, and you'd sit in this crowd. You'd be drinking the entire time, and you would watch a play about the power of a party. You know, it's like you watch Animal House, right? Animal House! Woo! Where's Jim Belushi? He's my favorite. Where did he go? You know, that kind of thing. And you you get all ripped. And then at the end of it, everybody would go down, and you would walk through the temple and worship. So here's a picture of the ruins of the temple at the bottom. And here they'd actually have these movable structures so the whole stage would move out of the way and you would walk through the center of the stage, worship in the temple, keep drinking, and then everybody would stumble out into the street. Because for some reason, drunk people love walking down the middle of the street. I don't know why, it's just the truth. Go to slow on any given weekend, and you'll see what I'm talking about, okay? And so and so they so they started storm out the street. They'd walk around. They'd carry the, these sticks, and these sticks were like a pre-modern, like a Facebook or Craigslist that the stick, you held it, and it said, I'm up for anything sexually. Come and talk to me. You know what the stick was called? A tryst. A tryst, okay? So you keep going, and you get to Zeus. You get to Zeus. Uh, Zeus's temple was considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Pergamum was the major place for Zeus' worship. And so, you know, Zeus, he is the, the god of gods. You know, he's powerful. He's got a lightning bolt, and he's going to, like, shoot it at you and do things like that. Uh, this is an artist's representation of what that temple would have looked like. They've actually rebuilt this in Germany. There in Berlin, there is a museum that's called the Pergamum Museum. And they built the front facade of this there, and it's just gigantic. It is just, it's just huge. And so you have all these different gods. And if you went to this city, I mean, you walked to Athena and De- Neodemeter and Dionysus, And Zeus, if you go on a guided tour today, they just point all of this stuff out to you. And it's almost kind of suffocating because there's like so many gods and this and that and all these things, but that's how Pergamum functioned. But that's not the last god you had in the city. Okay? Uh, As I told you last week, in these cities in Asia Minor, what they did is they had this competition to see who could worship the emperor the best. Uh, this started all the way back with the first Roman emperor, Augustus, not Julius Caesar. He wasn't an emperor. starts with Augustus, and they started to talk about themselves as gods on the earth. Around 9 BC, Augustus makes a temple to himself in Pergamum, and the emperors would speak of themselves as the sons of God sent to earth to bring about peace and prosperity. There were slogans that were said all over the empire, and you would say, Caesar is Lord. It is why when the early Christians said, Jesus is Lord, it's a big deal because you could be killed for saying those words. I mean, when we say Jesus is Lord today, it's totally true, but it really has a different ring to it in the days of Pergamon. So these cities in Asia Minor, they'd have this whole competition. Who can worship the best? Because, you know, if Caesar ruled the world and he has all the money and all the power, if he thinks you love him and worship him better than anybody else, he might direct some resources your way. That kind of sounds like Congress and the president today. Little capricious gods that they are, right? Get some Caesar cash. So, we're going to do. So, you could build new roads, new city projects. Call this the Roman stimulus package. All right? Because, and if you were attacked, Rome would come and Rome would then help you first. So, in Pergamum, you have Athena, Zeus, you know, Dionysus, all these temples, but you also then had temples to the Roman Caesars as well. These are the ruins of Trajan's temple. Uh, Here's another picture of it. These are just these huge, gleaming, massive buildings. Caesar would come into your city you would get a day off work. You would all go outside. You would go by and you would bow down in honor and worship the emperor as the one the God sent to the earth. That's Pergamum. Now, here's a blown-up view of the area in a map. Pergamum sits on top there. And... Pergamum, when we talk about you know, this whole thing where the emperor worships stuff, they actually like, won the competition. They were, they were considered the best. And so the Caesar actually gave the governor of Pergamum at the time that they believe Revelation is written what's called the right of the sword. The right of the sword was the ability to carry out a death sentence without having to run it up the chain. And so you decide somebody wasn't good enough, you do not like what they did, that guy could just say off with your head. He didn't have to call Rome or do anything like that because they believed this guy was able to bring about the, the law and the justice and the order of Rome. When I talked about Smyrna last week, I talked about how I don't think there was a lot of persecution in this city. There might have actually been some in this city. So Revelation chapter 2, hopefully you finally got there by now. Gave you a lot of time. Right? Verse 12, this is what it says. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Oh, that make a little more sense now? Oh, there you go. It's like you think your governor has a sword? He has the right of life and death? Jesus holds life and death in his hands. Verse 13, I know where you dwell. This is saying I know where you live. If you whisper it, it sounds scary. I know where you live. <laughs> right? I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Well, that can't be good. Where Satan's throne is. I've seen a scary movie like Amityville when all the flies show up and the demons go, get out of the house. Be like, we're moving. <laughs> What's that? I don't know what that is. I'm hearing things. Pfft. You wake up at 3:50. Anybody see Amityville? No. You wake up at like 3.15 every stinking morning and the flies, <clears throat> just be like, you know, someone else can call the priest take care of it. We're just moving. I, I don't where satan's throne is now the reason why they said satan's throne is because if you walked in the valley you would actually look up and you would see on this acropolis on this this top area all of these temples and it looked like a throne most people think it references directly zeus's temple here's another artist's representation of what they think it looked like i mean it is just massive and huge and to say this is like satan's throne now all the normal common people would live in the valley floor but all the elite and the religious leaders all live up in that temple fortress. So he says, "Yet you hold fast to my, you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells." Now Antipas, there's a few different characters named Antipas throughout the history of the church, but here they believe this Antipas is actually the overseer of the church in Pergamum during the reign of the emperor Domitian. Uh, Antipas's name means against. All, against all, which means he was standing probably alone for the faith, trying to inspire people to do the same with him. According to church tradition, Antipas was actually appointed as overseer of Pergamum by the apostle John. Now, there's a story told of the residents of Pergamum, they're all worshipping their false gods. You know, they go, oh, here's my false god, flies and, ah, you know, and all that. And, and, and what, these false, what these false gods and demons started to say to people in the city was, we're going to leave this city because Antipas keeps casting us out, and we don't like that. So, what they did is they went and they arrested Antipas. And they took him to the governor and said, this is happening. So the governor tried to convince him, worship Caesar, worship these other gods, stop doing this, and everything's going to be okay. And Antipas goes, no, I'm not going to do that. That's just crazy, your demon worship. This is dumb. And so they take him in front of Caesar's temple. And there's an iron bull in that temple, and they say, sacrifice to Caesar or you're going to die. And he says, no. They throw him in the bull and they roast him alive. And so when you see pictures and paintings of Antipas, this is usually how he's represented, just like this looks a little happier than I think I would be if I was in the bowl, by the way, but they they throw him in there. Okay, so that's Antipas, verse 14. But I have a few things against you. So Jesus shows up and he got a little report card, like you can't argue, just take what he's going to say. You have some there who hold the, hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now for a long time, people didn't know what the teachings of the Nicolaitans were. You get three scholars in a room, they have ten different opinions. But now as we come around, these two things are actually related. The teaching of Balaam, the teaching of Nicolaitans. Apparently what happened is there's a group of people in this church who were part of it in some capacity. And they started to say, look, I know we worship Jesus as God. But you know what? You can still go over to Athena's temple. It's not really a big deal. You can still go to the Dionysus party and worship in that temple. I mean, it's just Mardi Gras. Don't really worry about it too much. If the emperor comes to town, you got to bow down to him as the son of God. We know that we all know that's really Jesus. So go ahead and bow down. It's it's going to be okay. You know, you know in your heart it's really Jesus. Just bow down so no one's offended. You don't come across as crazy and weird and religious. The Nicolaitans were like, do whatever you really want. It's not that big of a deal. Either this church had no discernment. had no backbone or had no desire to weed out what was worth consuming and what wasn't and i think based upon what jesus says the positive is you haven't denied my name i think it comes down to they had a total lack of discernment a lack of discernment would be like you if you had a baby going on to like megan's list trying to find a babysitter oh i hear you like take pictures of kids have mine right that is no discernment man i thought that would actually work for you okay whatever this is the we've got to be more discerning about what we read i mean you think well i don't read okay well what you watch see 50 shades of gray is not the song of solomon okay two totally different things all <laughs> right what we got to be careful what we let our hearts and our minds consume it's not all okay it's not it will kill you it will lead other people down the same dumb path see we we got to understand that our life is always going to follow our theology It's always going to follow what we believe. And if your theology is messed up, it's going to show in your life. You will let things into it that you shouldn't let into it. I mean, as soon as we start consuming without discernment, we start questioning here and questioning there. What does Jesus say? Verse 16, Therefore repent, turn around, Come home. I am like the Father who has been seeking you. Come home. Follow me. Trust me. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. A lot of people think that is the idea of I will come to you and war with you with the truth. And that's part of it. But also, again, they'd understand the right Of the sword that Jesus holds life and death in his hands. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, imagine you're a Christian. You say, I'm going to follow Jesus, and you are living in Pergamum. You have heard the the message of the crucified and resurrected Jesus. It moves your heart in such a way when you hear about this grace and this freedom that he longs to give to you. That you don't have to go to all these temples. You don't have to sacrifice to all these gods because you don't know if they're angry with you or not. It's like, oh, I have such freedom now. I don't have to like, you know, give to the cereal God to get more groceries. It's, it's that God's heart is moved and inclined towards you. It's the gospel that the grace and truth of Jesus sets you free. You know that Jesus talks about God as a father who loves his children and he's not angry holding a Zeus lightning bolt ready just to fry your butt with it. That God is, is disposed to grace towards you. That God actually knows how many hairs are on your head. He causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. That God sent Jesus because God loves his children. And he's making peace with them through the death and life life of his son. And you can trust him. This is the gospel. The gospel simply means the good news. This is the good news. You get to be free. The central premise of how Jesus was spoken to these people was that Jesus had conquered and brought peace, not through military violence, but through the shedding of his own blood for us. That Jesus knows the relationship that first must be restored is the relationship between us and God. And then that goes out to us and each other. I mean, Jesus doesn't say, agree with me or I'll kill you. He says, follow me, follow me. Come home, I will show you what it means to live a life of freedom and and hope. I mean, he is God, but we're told in Romans 5.8 that God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. While we're running away from him, he dies, he calls us home. This is a new kind of kingdom that is centered around God and his glory. That he is the one bringing real and true peace, and that all of Rome's claimed peace is just a mockery of God's true peace and true justice. And I told you last weekend, earlier today, that Pergamum, you know, this ancient city competition, you know, they won the best. I mean, they were the best emperor worshiper. What that means is that they got to become what was called a temple warden. A temple warden. And that means that they got to say they protected Caesar's temple. Now, can you imagine living in the city, trying to explain to your neighbor, because they had neighbors back then too, you know, and, or your coworkers, and they had those back then too, that you follow Jesus. And they would say, well, tell me about it. And you would say, well, okay, he came, he lived the life we should have lived. Uh, he loved God like we should have loved God. He died because we should have died, but he died for us in our place. He was risen from the dead to bring us new life so we can have a relationship with God. Well, then they'd say, well, how did he die? And you'd say, well, he was crucified. Well, who crucified him? Well, you know, the Romans crucified him. Well, well then what happened? Well, as I said, you know, he, he, he rose from the dead. You know, what does that mean? Well, that means that he is Lord and, and Caesar is not. Imagine trying to explain that in a city known for its worship of the Roman emperor, and you worship a savior who was crucified by the Roman Empire. You're trying to explain this. Like, your guy got killed. What kind of movement is that? The Caesar temple, it's right there. Where's your God's temple? What do you respond with? Well, he's now setting up his temple in us, his people. We are meant to be his temple. You're looking at it. Who is your guy conquered? You know, Satan, sin, and death. I mean, that, your enemies. That, 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 that's what he conquered. Can you imagine trying to explain this in this culture of all these questions and all these experiences that people are having? You're trying to explain the experience of the healing love and freedom of the resurrected Christ. Can you imagine trying to stay true to the principles of Scripture when everything around you is pushing against that, when people start calling you names unfairly? I mean, there's got to be moments when all you have is your story of how Jesus rescued and redeemed you, and maybe the story of your ragged little community that confesses Jesus is Lord. I imagine it's why Jesus says, stay true. Stay true. Operate in discernment, because in a city like this, I mean, the gospel we preach should be from our hearts and our lungs and how we live. It, it should go out there. But in a city like this, a lot of times your words may not go as far as you'd hope. And so it's got to be done with your hands and your feet and your life. So people are watching you. What does redemption look like in real life and real time in your life? Jesus, stay true. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Well, what's that? Well, manna is a story about food and sustenance. And he's like, are you tired and weary of trying to appease Ceres for, for your cereal to get your grain and bread? Are you tired of always going to all these different gods and maybe they'll give you what you need, you know? God gives you what you need, not what you want, but what you need. I mean, practically, do you get tired of trying to explain your Jesus experience to a culture that doesn't understand, doesn't care, or is openly hostile to it all the time? A culture that maybe screams for tolerance, 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 and yet who are so intolerant of anybody who doesn't agree with them or worship their false gods. I mean, see, this in no way makes sense for us today. I mean, for them like us, there's got to be moments where everything inside of you is just going, why, 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 what? what am I doing? And they would say, Jesus is Lord. He works in mysterious ways. He is rescuing and saving and restoring and redeeming me. Sometimes I can put that into words, and sometimes I can't. I think the hidden man is Jesus saying that when you are weary, when you're exhausted, I will sustain you. I have called you to live on mission with me. And when that is just overwhelming, I will give you strength and I will carry you. It's just like the Israelites are in the desert and they wonder where their next meal is coming from. When you say, I can't even have one more of those conversations, Jesus says, I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to give, because I have called you to live on mission. Mission is a life purpose of anybody who calls Jesus Lord. You know, we glorify him. We have gospel community with one another. It means we're discipling one another. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. White stones of Pergamum were used for a variety of different imitations and different things. Like if you went to a party or a banquet or a temple, you'd show up, here's my white stone, oh, thanks, and they'd let you in. What it tells you is Jesus has invited you to partner with him and live with him. He gives you a new name. Well, what is that name? That's a new identity in Christ. You get a new identity. It's a way to understand, persevering, trusting Jesus. I will create in you new strength. I will create in you new character and new substance. And when you have been through the fire, maybe literally like Antipas, I will use that to make you more loving and more resilient and more like me. See, when others around you are like, does it really matter? We say, yes, it does matter. Living on a mission with Jesus does matter. Now, I don't know if you can see how this relates to Lent and the questions and the really hard, heart-searching things that we have to do. But I'll ask you some questions. Number one, where are you lacking discernment? Where are you lacking discernment? You know, where are you just letting things into your life without questioning anything? Where is that in your life? Secondly, where do you have discernment? Where do you have discernment? And you've said, oh, I know that's wrong, but you're like, but I really like to do it. So you just go do it anyway. Where, where is that? Uh, What things, you know, for all of us, what things do we have in our homes, on our DVRs, in our marriage that are pulling us further away from Christ and the other person and not closer to Christ and the other person? Where have we placed our cultures or our own beliefs about what is right or wrong, true or false, ahead of Jesus? Where have we done that? Where are we like the church in Pergamum? What's really interesting is that the throne of Satan that they talk about here, all those temples, they're all destroyed. They're all ruins today. You know, one of the saddest things is today Pergamum is home to about 80,000 people, 80,000 people. Not one of them will claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. None of them. And I think about like America. America has millions and millions of people who claim to be Christians. But a lot of us don't worship Jesus with even near the devotion the people in Pergamum did. I mean, our hearts, our intention, our life focus is all over the place. And it should be focused in one place on Jesus Jesus calls us to change. He calls us to mission, that we live on mission with Him. This is the entire call of all these churches. Worship rightly. Live on mission. Live the call I'm giving you in your life because it's freedom and it's hope and it's true life. This is what He calls us to. I mean, we we come to communion every week, and it's not simply because... It's like we want you guys to eat you know, really bad crackers and horrible grape juice or wine. You know, that's not how we do it. Community is the place where we understand and take all the places that we haven't had discernment in our lives and we lay it down at the feet of Jesus. And we say, now, will you teach me? Will you show me the life I'm supposed to live? Because a lot of times we think freedom is doing whatever we want to do. But the more we do whatever we want to do, the more things get their hooks and their chains in us. And Jesus comes and breaks all those chains and says, Worship and follow me. That's true freedom. Nothing has a hold on you. Nothing. You are free. And so communion is where we come and we're aware of all of our own vulnerabilities. All the vulnerability that we have. And a so place you come and trust that Jesus is who he really says that he is. And a lot of times communion is a place of weakness. Where we say, I understand my weakness. I understand that I personally needed saving. I personally needed redemption. I personally needed rescue. And then we trust him because he is the one who has provided all of those things. We trust him to be the God that He has always said that he is. And so we do. We you to take communion. Like You break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. And that represents his blood that was shed for you and me. So that we can be a people who are free. He promises when he rises from the dead. He's going to send his spirit. And his spirit comes into every one of his believers. And we, he now makes us his temple. But as a temple that means we've got to listen to the things that he says. And his spirit will give us discernment. But we must live in the discernment that he gives. And not just toss it because maybe something's easier. Or something's a lot more fun than living in that discernment. I mean we have hope. And our lives because he is the one who has given hope. The band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you to take some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, I mean, maybe you have no discernment in your life. Maybe you have a ton of discernment, but you just don't like it and you toss it out the window because everything else seems more fun than the discernment. They would love to pray with you. They would love to talk to you about these kind of things. You know, if, if you have never actually surrendered your life to Christ, you've never actually followed him, they'd love to talk to you about that as well. Because Jesus wants to set you free from all of these things so that you can live a life of freedom and hope. I mean, it, it is, it's not about what you do. It's about what Christ has already done. When, when we talk about setting you free and following Jesus, it's not about trying to appease, appease him through doing all of these law-type works. It's about understanding that his freedom and grace has first been extended to us, and then we love and live and serve him because we understand that love and grace better. You know He loves us so much, it's like, how can I not love him back? How can I not live in a way that honors him? And this is what he calls us to, a people to understand deeper his grace and his goodness. And if you would have any questions about that, they'd love to pray with you. There's offering boxes in the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gives so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's always a response to what he has done in the giving he has first done to us. Uh, there's food in the back. We invite you to grab something to eat meet some other people. Uh, maybe go out to lunch and talk to some friends or your spouse. Or if you don't have a spouse, maybe you can meet one in the back. I don't know. You know. <laughs> and then you know, and, and maybe kind of talk through some of those questions. Grow a little bit deeper. Right? Understand more of what God is doing in and through his people. I mean, I'll tell you, it, it is a lot easier to live this life when we live with the way God calls us to, with other people around us, living in intentional communities centered around the gospel. We're always speaking that good news to each other, calling each other to live in ways that show discernment. I mean, discernment doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. But I believe he puts his spirit in us so that we are able to discern the right from the wrong and the true from the false. And I think when he starts talking, we as a people must be more in tune to listen to what he's saying. Because it's not many times that he's silent. Many times it's that we fail to listen. Guys, let's listen. Let's not become like this church in Pergamum. Let's, let's hope that 2,000 years from now, there's still a church somewhere that's actually called Element that loves Jesus and talks about the gospel and loves the whole idea of redemption because Jesus is still redeeming people because he is good. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us how to live in the grace and the hope of who you are that you would deliver us quite frankly from ourselves and how we so often take and distort and twist everything to make it about ourselves bring light to all the hidden crevices of our hearts of the things that we long and love to hold on to all the things that dishonor you just let those things go And have us live in a way that shows that we are children who love our Father above everything else. We thank you for loving us when we so often are unlovable. And I ask that your Spirit would come and not just renew us, but would break us. so that we would see the weakness and the fickleness of our own hearts and that in that brokenness you would rebuild us into a people who understand your redemption better and better and better and that our lives reflect that more and more and how we treat others around us but also how we listen and treat you. Teach us to be a people who worship you and you alone. A people who have been delivered from our chains and into the great glorious freedom of the people of God. We ask that in your son's good name. Amen.